So why don't we go ahead and stand, and I'll read God's word to you, and then we'll go back over the, the vision. It's a short chapter compared to the other one. All right. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste, and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming." As a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for this glimpse into uh, the heavenly realm, a realm that we are strangers to. But nonetheless, our God dwells there. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that as we go through this vision, Lord, that you would instruct us Uh, that you would reveal further your holiness to us, our need, our want of holiness. Yeah, Lord, that we would better understand as worshipers who it is that we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll go ahead and be seated. So you might be wondering right away, uh, why isn't chapter 6 chapter 1? Why isn't his call to ministry at the beginning? I've read a number of uh, explanations for why. Uh, I haven't landed on any of them for certain. Um, But it is interesting. There's only three visions before this. There's chapter one is a vision of its own. And then chapter two through four is one vision. And then chapter five is a vision. So there's only three visions given. And uh, the the visions were probably uh, the first three visions were probably given after this, but for some reason, uh, Isaiah has thought, it's time to uh, mention how it is that I came into the ministry. And so here's where you find it, that's where it's at, and uh, that's what we got. So I think it is worth noting that when we go to the Gospels, the, 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 the authors tell us about 
you know, who Jesus is and they introduce him to us. Um, but as far as Jesus, when he comes on the scene, that happened, of course, before the Gospels were written. And he doesn't reveal himself immediately, does he? He kind of does it gradually, uh, especially kind of letting the miracles themselves speak for themselves. And then as the, the narrative goes along uh, in that three and a half years of his ministry, he explains more and more. His identity especially was hidden from the Pharisees. Uh, and it wasn't until he stood before the high priest and the high priest said, just, would, just tell us, are you the son of the blessed? And he says, you got it. And then, of course, uh, they condemn him to death, and the next morning he's crucified. So anyway, a man has the right to tell his story at any time, doesn't he? All right, let's get into this. So Isaiah begins, he says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So King Uzziah died uh, around 740 B.C., and uh, just for a little bit of historical context, Isaiah, not Isaiah, but Uzziah had lived in isolation for some years. Does anybody remember why? Leprosy, that's right. So he, came, he ascended the throne at the age of 16, and uh, he had served the Lord faithfully for years and years and years. He had done much in regard to restoring uh, the faith of Israel. Um, he, uh, he did much for Judah. Um, he did a lot. He rebuilt much of the city. But as he, later in, in years, it says that he grew strong. And the idea is that he, he became arrogant, he became presumptuous. And what he did in his presumption is he went into the Holy of Holies uh, and he was going to burn incense there before um, the, the final curtain. Uh, on the other side of that curtain would be the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, he's not supposed to be in there. And he's definitely not supposed to be offering incense in that place. And so as he's preparing to offer incense, uh, Azariah the priest and 80 other priests, it says valiant men, came in there and opposed him, confronted him and said, you must leave now. And they say, for only the sons of Aaron can do this. Well, he was determined to uh, go ahead and offer his incense. And uh, the Lord struck him on his forehead with leprosy. It just blossomed right there in front of everyone. And uh, the moment he realized what had happened, he departed from the temple. And of course, because of the law uh, regarding lepers, he was forced to live in isolation, never to return to society, and never uh, to return to worship in the temple. Very sad story. Uh, but when we read other accounts in the scriptures where people presumptuously uh, approached the altar, uh, God killed them. So actually, God showed Uzziah a lot of mercy by doing what he did. So we don't know how long he lived in isolation, but it was apparently for years. That would be a tough way to live, but it's an important lesson to learn. Amen? God is not to be presumed upon. And it's interesting that when we read through the Torah, just as a kind of a segue here, I guess we call it rabbit trails, don't we? There's this one-way street that God has instituted between the church, we'll call it the church, uh, you know, Old Testament, theocratic Israel, the church and the state, even back then, okay? The state was never to impose or interfere on the affairs of the church, and that's why uh, Uzziah was judged the way that he was, okay? 
Now, that does not mean that the state could not prosecute criminal activity among the clergy, if you will. But the affairs of the church itself were off limits to the government. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But the theocratic Israel, uh, the church, was required to influence the state. The church did not govern the state, but the church was responsible for holding the state accountable to the word of God. It was responsible for keeping the state moral. And uh, in theocratic Israel, the high priest was actually the supreme judge of the land. So matters that could not be settled by local uh, elders uh, or by the king himself would then be taken before the high priest. That's the way that it was supposed to go. doesn't mean that that's the way it went. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus does not permit the church to allow the state to govern its affairs. Of course, they do at times, uh, and they try, uh, but Jesus does not permit us to honor the wishes of the state in the execution of what we would call our covenant duties, our covenant responsibilities. And uh, that would account for one of the reasons why we did not honor the state when they said to shut our doors here. As soon as the CDC's first batch of numbers came out, we, we opened the doors. And uh, it wasn't for them to decide for us. It was for us to evaluate uh, the danger, the scriptures, and then go from there. So anyway, um, I could talk a lot about the separation of church and state. For example, when uh, any influence that the church has in the school systems People say, well, that's a violation of separation of church and state. It's really not. It's not what the, 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 you know, that document states. It's just talking about the state imposing on us. It says nothing about us doing anything with the, the state. But anyway, that's another matter. Back to the vision. So it was in Uzziah's final year that uh, Isaiah saw the vision. We don't know at what point in the year. It could have been the beginning, the end, somewhere in between. Uh, but uh, it was before his death. Now, it is interesting when you look at the way that uh, like historians in the Old Testament and prophets recorded history, they use different kind of timestamps and things like that. And Isaiah is the only one that makes a reference to time by the death of someone. And he actually does it twice. So he, he, this is the year that Uzziah died. And then in Isaiah 14, verses 1 through 32, uh, his vision regarding the judgment of uh, Felicia has to do with the same year that King Ahaz died. So just kind of a unique way that, that Isaiah uh, did his uh, historiography. But here in this one, it's the year that Uzziah died. And he says here that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And the throne is either um, suspended or the, the throne is huge. Okay, it's hard to tell uh, by the description here. And it says that his, his robe, of course, you know, the, the, the high priestly garments and, and Middle Eastern garments were, were long and flowing, but here it's, it's draping down and it's filling the temple below. Now, I, I wish that, I don't know that I wish that I had actually seen this um, because Isaiah's experience wasn't all that pleasant, at least initially, but I, I wish I could explain it to you better, but I'm glad we're not in Ezekiel. If you've read Ezekiel's initial visions, anyway, we'll, we're going to get there someday. But it's very difficult to visualize what Ezekiel's talking about because of the types of language he used. He says it was like the appearance 
of the likeness of this. It's like, okay, well, thanks. So, but anyway, uh, this, is, this whole vision is interesting because according to Moses and the description given of uh, the temple in Hebrews in the book of Revelation, the earthly temple was a replica, was to be constructed as a replica of the temple or the throne room of God in heaven. And the throne itself uh, here in our vision is located there between these, these seraphim, the text says, but the, the temple itself had cherubim instead of seraphim. And uh, we don't know of all the workings in heaven, but the Lord dwelt between the cherubim, as you know in the, the pictures uh, of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the angels are going like this over the mercy seat and their wings are touching in the tip uh, in the middle. And God says that he dwells between those cherubim. And uh, the imagery uh, suggests that the mercy seat itself is a picture, uh, a visual, if you will, of the throne of God with the angels gathered around him for worship. Now, when it came to the Solomon's temple, there, of course, were the cherubim over the mercy seat, and then there were these massive cherubim over them, and then the walls were decorated with cherubim, all surrounding this, this dwelling place of God in providing uh, adoration and praise. Isaiah's vision of the temple seems to be not of the earthly temple, okay? Um, but the throne room in heaven. There's no priests ministering in this temple. Uh, there's just angelic beings. But the Lord is seated there, customary kind of robes, and they're down on the pavement filling the temple. But there doesn't seem to be any worries of anyone trampling his garments because the ministers here do not go by foot. They fly, okay? What a strange image that would be. So and above it stood seraphim as opposed to cherubim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. All right, so as I said, this is the only place where we see the seraphim in all of the Bible. Okay, now the word uh, is used elsewhere uh, to describe a fiery serpent. But they're not seraphim as this. It was just the word was used to Described. The word seraph means to burn. And so these angelic beings, they must have appeared as though they were on fire uh, or you know, somehow resembled something that was ablaze or maybe even perhaps you know, as bronze or other metals go into the fire and they, they get to a certain temperature, they glow a different color. And, uh, and so you knew that, it, that whatever that metal was, it was hot. And so it, it means to burn. Uh, perhaps they resembled something... Uh, like the cherubim in Ezekiel's um, vision, where the, the, they had the appearance of fire. Imagine seeing all that. So I suspect you know, that they were beautiful. Um, when we look at the, when Moses is giving the description of the, everything in the temple, God keeps saying everything must be for beauty. So the carvings in the temple, the furnishings, even all of the robes of the high priests and the priests were all to be for beauty. The temple was to be this beautiful place. And uh, so I imagine that these angelic beings were fascinating. Uh, the word seraphim, uh, we see the I-M attached to a number of words in the Old Testament. 
It's actually that case ending is a plurality of three or more. So like in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, it's actually Elohim. And so it's a, it's, it's a plurality of deity, if you will, of three or more. Of course, we, we see an allusion there, perhaps, to the Trinity. We'll talk some more about that later. So we don't know how many seraphim are in the throne room at this time. It's, it's, it's probably more than three. It's probably a multitude. When we go to John's vision in Revelation chapter 5, the, the angelic host that he sees cannot be counted. So I wonder how many of those are seraph, seraphim. We don't know. Uh, when we get to heaven, I think it's going to be me quite surprised because we have angels, we have, I guess we would say, normal angels, we have cherubim, and we have seraphim, and they're all three different species of angels. Have you guys ever thought about different species of angels? Uh, well, they're there in the scriptures, and um, I think it's going to be very interesting when we get to heaven and we see all that God has created for his, his good pleasure, for beauty, for honor. And so these uh, ones here, they're unique, as the text says. They have six wings. Uh, They don't necessarily need all of them to fly. Uh, As we see them here suspended, uh, they used one set to cover their face, uh, one set used to fly, and the other set to cover their feet. Now, we can only speculate as to why they did that. Uh, Most commentators agree, uh, at least to some degree, that they covered their faces to hide themselves from the glory of God, or uh, some say to demonstrate their unworthiness to look upon God. Uh, all of them agree, essentially, that it's some kind of gesture of, of humility, of being in his presence. And then some, in regard to covering the feet, uh, make mention of the ancient Eastern custom that when you entered into the presence of, of a monarch, you would cover your feet. Now, uh, probably because feet with sandals that are in the dust all day. Uh, they're, not, they're not anything to write home about. And so when you go into the presence of a king, you would, you would cover those funky things, okay? Now, that, that interpretation may be true, but it, it kind of assumes that the, the customs of heaven are the same customs of earth. And so I, I don't know what to say about it, but um, when we get to heaven, we'll probably see this very thing. And I think at that time, we'll understand what it all means, all of that. Perhaps we'll cover our own faces. Let's see. Maybe you'll fly too. I don't know. I don't think you'll have wings though. And in the vision, it says, one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, it's not clear if the, the seraph continued to call out this way, back and forth. But it appears to be like Isaiah has entered into a, a worship service in heaven. That he's, he's just entered into something that happens there. And so I'm assuming that in this particular service, that is shouted or sung uh, within the, the throne room of heaven. The repetition of the word uh, holy uh, is for emphasis. We see it all through the Old Testament. When words are repeated, it's for emphasis. Here, it communicates God's transcendence in regard to his holiness. Now the challenge when we come to uh, the concept of holiness in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, is that it can actually speak to two aspects of God's nature, two very different ones. The one regards his, his metaphysical transcendence, that he is altogether 
beyond us. He's distinct from all of his creation. He's utterly unique in his being and his existence. His his transcendence is probably the most difficult thing to understand. Anything metaphysical is, is difficult to understand. The other speaks of his moral nature. And typically, when we think of holiness, we think of, of, of something moral. And here, it's, you know, speaking, we would say it speaks of his, his absolute purity, his unchanging, unpolluted, and unpollutable holiness, his purity, his moral character. Now, the latter definition is in view here, and as we see later, the, the context will dictate that. The seraph also mentions that the whole earth is filled with God's glory, the whole earth. Now, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, Romans 1 says something similar, that it's, it's, you can know multiple things about God by looking at the created world, and uh, everything created is a testimony of God's majesty. We would say the beauty, the organization, and function of the created order declares God's glory, his wisdom, his power. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that the angels single out the earth, and they talk about the Lord's glory filling the earth. Now, it's interesting to me because the earth as we see it today is the product of judgment. The the earth suffered the judgment of God at the flood. It destroyed it, you know, as far as its original beauty. And, uh, but even after all of that, the earth still exudes the wisdom, the power, and the majesty of the creator. And these seraphim, who uh, always dwell in God's inapproachable light, still recognize the earth as glorious, even though it's, it's after judgment. I think that's very interesting. How many of you guys think the heavens are beautiful? They are beautiful. Uh, especially now that we have these powerful telescopes that can look deep into space and see uh, all of these different things. Um, but even as beautiful as the heavens are, they do not compare to the earth. The variety uh, and all of that. But there's one thing, or a few things, that stand out about earth in contrast to all of the rest of the universe. There's life here, for one. There's nothing living in all the vastness of space, but the earth is, in a sense, alive. It teems with life, and it's here that God chose to create man in his image. Okay? It's here that he chose to reveal himself personally. He reveals his power in the heavens, but he reveals himself personally here to us. This is the place. Okay? This is it. In a similar fashion, just as God is distinct from all his creation, the earth stands out as unique in all of the creation. And the angels point that out. It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, it doesn't say that the doorpost shook by the voice of the Lord. It was by the voice of the seraphim. I think that it's easy for us to underestimate the kind of power that the angelic beings have. Okay, we, uh, we, we don't stand, uh, we don't hold a candle to them, if you will. Okay? And uh, to say that they have the potential to be dangerous is, is an understatement. When it comes to, uh, just as we, we began our discussion about demons in, in Matthew on Sunday, there's a story in the book of Acts where some wannabe exorcists approach a demon-possessed man. 
and uh, the, the sons of Sceva. And the demon in the man says, well, I, I know who Paul is and I know who Jesus is. I don't know who you are. And then the demon-possessed man beats up all these other men. So just the demon empowering a human being. Uh, they could not stand against him. Uh, when we look at uh, angelic uh, beings in the Old Testament, we see that they have tremendous power. And here, just by the, the, the angel's voice, uh, these massive doorposts, they shake there in the temple. The reference to the house is a reference to the temple, the temple complex. And like the cloud that filled the tabernacle after Moses dedicated in Exodus 40, we also see this, the smoke fill the temple after Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings. We see smoke here filling the temple. This occurs again in Revelation 15, just before God pours out his wrath on humanity uh, in the, the last uh, bold judgments. The text says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now you remember in Exodus and in 1 Kings, when, uh, in Exodus when the cloud filled the tabernacle, and in 1 Kings when the smoke filled the tabernacle, the priests couldn't do their job. Everybody had to leave the temple complex until it had cleared out. Uh, here in Revelation, uh, nobody could enter the temple until God's wrath was completed upon the earth. What an ugly scene that is. Well, the, the context of Isaiah 6 also has to do with judgment. Uh, Isaiah is being called and commissioned to communicate God's judgment to God's people. Of course, it's at a different time, and the objects of his wrath are different. But just imagine, um, you know, we don't know, you know, in some visions in the, in the scriptures, people are awake when they have a vision. Like Ezekiel, he's by the river, and uh, he has this vision while he's wide awake. And um, uh, some people have their visions when they're asleep. I don't know if Isaiah was out and about tending to his normal duties, and then he has this vision, uh, or if he was asleep. But imagine being engaged this way, uh, for him, all of his faculties are engaged. He's, he, he sees all that's happening. He's hearing everything that's being said, and he feels the doorposts shaking. He, he must be on sensory overload, overload. But it's none of those things in this vision that get his attention. The thing that gets his attention is himself. It's himself. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. Look what he says. He sees, he hears, he feels all of this, and then he goes, he takes a look at himself. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Lord, there is Yahweh in the Hebrew, the covenant name of God. So instead of being caught up in the awe of the moment, enjoying the privilege you know, of being ushered into the presence of God and experiencing all of this stuff, he has an intense feeling of dread, of dread. He says, woe is me. He, he feel, he's sensing the danger of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
okay? He does not belong in this particular scene. The Hebrew word for undone is dama, which is typically translated as to perish or to cease to be, to be destroyed, to be cut off, to be silenced because you are no longer. That's the word there. I think the best way to render it in the English language is to say that Isaiah felt that he was doomed, that his life was about to end. And he gives his reasons. First, it's because he's a sinner who dwells among sinners and he's here in the presence of God. And also he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling, I'm sorry, second, he says, it is because he's seen the Lord of hosts. And the scriptures, that's a problem. Now, Moses got to see the trailing edge of God's glory, but God said to him, I'm not going to let you see my face because, well, you'll die. Okay? Now, it doesn't say in the text all that Isaiah saw. He just says, I saw the Lord. But there's no face, there's no, there's no image, is there? There's, I saw the Lord, and I saw his, the train of his robe filling the temple. Okay? Now, earlier I said that we should define God's holiness in the terms of his moral nature because the context demands it. Well, here Isaiah is having a moral reaction to God's holiness, isn't he? That's moral, and this is not. That's morally beautiful and stunning, and this is not. So God's moral beauty is on full display in his throne room, and there's one thing contaminating it. It's Isaiah, and that's all he can think about is that he does not fit in. He's not thinking, of course, about God's medical or his metaphysical transcendence. He's concerned about God's moral purity. So in light, it's in light of God's holiness, he sees himself for what he is. He's a wretch, a man of unclean lips, which suggests that his manner of speaking was ungodly. And it's a form of ungodliness that apparently plagues the nation as well. Now, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks The mouth reveals what's in a man's heart. And so what comes out of the mouth, if it is corrupt, it is because the heart has been corrupted, right? That's what Jesus says. And so here's Isaiah, and he's completely exposed. The light of God's glory is like a magnifying glass that intensifies every detail of his moral flaws. It's all on display before God. I think how dreadfully uncomfortable it was for Isaiah, okay, who now is fearing for his own life. And for him, you know, it's, it wouldn't be enough to flee from God's presence. It wouldn't be enough to hide. There's, there's nothing that he can do to improve the state he was in. There's nothing he can do to protect himself. Perhaps he's thinking that if only God would cover his eyes like the seraphim, they covered their eyes to shield themselves from God's glory. And God, if he could only cover his eyes and shield himself from my uncleanness. So dread, dread. But of course, God has not revealed all this to Isaiah just to kill him, right? It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. It's all interesting. The, the burning one, which seraph means, takes a burning coal from the altar Now, it doesn't say which altar it was. It could have been the altar of incense that was at the foot of the throne, uh, or it could have been the altar of of burnt sacrifice, which was further away. But either way, in Isaiah's vision, the seraph touches his mouth 
with the coal, and he declares that Isaiah's sin and his guilt have been atoned for and taken away. Good timing, right? Good timing. <clears throat> now, the word for purge is the same word that's used for atonement in the book of Leviticus. Now, biblical atonement is always accomplished by an innocent substitute. So the atonement for Isaiah's sin was apparently made by some unknown substitute. Now, listen carefully. The substitute to whom both the offense of Isaiah and the punishment that belonged to Isaiah were transferred to. That's the way substitution works. The offense of the sinner and the consequences that the sinner deserved are transferred to the substitute, which always result in the offense being removed from God's sight, and then the sinner is made acceptable in God's presence. I'm a big fan of atonement, by the way, right? Now, something that we have to understand about atonement is Isaiah is still the sinner he was before, but now he was legally accepted by God, legally. By the act of atonement, the beneficiary does not cease to be what he is by nature. Have you guys ceased being sinners by nature, though your sins have been atoned for? No, you're still a sinner. Just ask your spouse, okay? He wasn't somehow transformed and no longer a sinner. The beneficiary is forgiven, and the offense is no longer held against him. So by the act of atonement, an appropriate penalty is paid, and the offender is released from the consequences of their offense, and then provided an acceptable standing before God. That is, the sinner may stand now in the presence of God without fear of consequence because the innocent substitute paid the fine. Okay? And they now stand before God as the substitute once did, and that is innocent. And so now Isaiah stands there, not presumptuously, but safely, having been forgiven. Now, of course, that is precisely how uh, the gospel works, right? The innocent substitute is the sinless son of God, who is Christ. He bore our sins, and he took our punishment at Calvary. And through faith in him, the scriptures say we're forgiven of all sin, and his righteousness is transferred to us so that we can stand before the Father as Jesus does. Not did, like the Old Testament sacrifices, but does because he was risen from the dead. He ever lives, the author of Hebrews says, to make intercession for the saints. Okay, it's called the everlasting gospel because Jesus lives. Now understand, without Christ, the sinner is in grave danger. John 3.36 says that apart from Christ, the wrath of God abides on that person. And when they come to Christ, who has suffered the consequences for their sin, they cease to be the object of God's wrath and they become the object of his affection. It's atonement, it's beautiful. Let's move on. So then, after his sin is purged, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Now that he's purged, it's appropriate for God to extend the commission to him. Now, if Isaiah had not been purged, God would not have extended the commission to him. And if Isaiah had not been purged, there's no way that Isaiah in that context would have spoken up, right? Because he was trembling there. He was fearing for his life. Now, because of the nature of the commission, 
it's imperative that Isaiah be cleansed. How could he, you know, uh, you know fulfill his duties before the Lord as, as God's spokesman with, you know, as it were, a filthy mouth? Now, the purpose of the vision, at least in part, was to reveal to Isaiah that he, was go- he, was, he would be a forgiven sinner communicating to unforgiven sinners. He would be calling a nation to repentance, but not before he had repented himself. He was going to, of course, bring the command to Israel that says, God said, be holy for I am holy. And he must experience some of that before he's qualified to, to present that to them. You know, it's easy to see the sins of others while look, overlooking our own, but it's impossible to do that when you're standing in the presence of God. I think we all need some kind of experience with God in that fashion. And I believe that oftentimes it happens in communion. It happens in worship. It happens in the reading of God's word. And um, I'm not a guy that is much into communicating experiences, but um, my experience happened uh, in a communion service uh, at a youth meeting. And uh, I remember going and getting the elements, returning to my seat, and... uh, and it was, everybody was you know, allowed to, to receive communion whenever they desired. And I just remember the conviction of God falling upon me and the sense of unworthiness to partake of the elements. But then realizing that Christ had indeed washed me and forgiven me. But in that experience, God had allowed me to you know, get a sense of my wretchedness, that none of this was deserving. And he wasn't doing it to be harsh or mean to be. He was helping me to greater appreciate the sacrifice. And as Paul talks about, you know, walking worthy of the sacrifice. Uh, you know, Paul and John both talk about, you know, fruits worthy of repentance. And uh, I just thank God for that experience. It would probably be healthy if I had it daily. <laughs> but just to be reminded of what I am, uh, and especially apart from him. Well, Isaiah got that. He wasn't, God wasn't going to allow him to go before the nation thinking that he was some kind of, of holy man that stood above the people. He was a sinner that was communicating to other sinners. That's important, especially, I think, for people in ministry, because they're never above the people. And so God revealed how sinful Isaiah was before he allowed him to minister to the people. Uh, he got a, a good sense of his own need for righteousness uh, before he went before them. Notice here in the commission to Isaiah that there's a change from the singular to the plural. God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So the Lord of hosts who sits on the throne, of course, that's the one speaking, but he's speaking for more than just himself, all right? He's speaking for others. Now, some have assumed, just as they do in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 11, that God is speaking to the angels. When he says us, he's speaking to the angelic hosts. Okay? But here, there is a plurality of persons extending a commission to man. But in the scriptures, angels are dispatched to serve man. They don't commission man. Only God commissions man, especially in these kinds of contexts. Okay, so there's certainly an allusion to a plurality of persons in God, which we know as the Trinity. But the question is, which person of the Trinity here is sitting on the throne and doing the speaking? Because I'll bet that all of us have an assumption, and the assumption is probably wrong. We'll come back to it. Okay? Isaiah responds to the commission with eagerness. He's probably still shaking. Uh, last night, Samuel 
uh, rode a ride at the fair. And an hour later, he was still shaking because the adrenaline hadn't quite uh, been metabolized in his system. And I'll bet that (laughs) Isaiah was still trembling as he said, I'm right here, send me. But how could he answer differently? You know, how can those who have been purged undeservedly of their sins not spread the news of God's forgiveness? We We gotta say something, right? Paul says, we believed and therefore we spoke. And so God responds, he said, go. It's probably not what Isaiah wanted to hear. But he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Anything else you'd like me to say? You see, Judah, up to this point, has relentlessly sinned against the Lord, though he has sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, calling them to repentance, a a, a promise of, of the extension of God's mercy, but even saying that if you do not repent, there's danger on the horizon. But because they would not listen, God's judgment would be this, okay? He would have Isaiah teach them his word, but the more he teaches them, the less they would understand. The more they see, the less they'll perceive. He was going to make it impossible for these rebellious people to even repent. He would make it so they could not be healed. Now, some people think, well, that's just so unfair. In what universe is that unfair? I mean, God is under no obligation to reach out to the sinner in the first place. All obligation rests upon the sinner, period. God has no obligation to do that. He could let every sinner perish without a word, and he would be nonetheless righteous for it. Man does not deserve God's pity. Do we? No. The rebel, we do not. We do not deserve God's pity. But after God has reached out to them over and over without success, God in his righteousness must judge them. He must judge them. And here he does it with spiritual blindness and deafness. So he's not going to allow corporate Judah to repent. I think we need to be careful that when God talks this way, it does not mean every individual. If it does, it means Isaiah as well, okay? But it doesn't. It means the corporate, uh, the the greater body of the nation. He's going to see to it that they are judged for their wickedness. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now notice, uh, Isaiah knows enough about the Lord that this probably isn't permanent. So he says, Lord, well, how long will this last? How long will this judgment be? And the Lord says that Judah will remain spiritually blind and deaf until their cities, the cities of Judah, are made desolate and there's no one to inhabit the houses. Now, God's clearly talking about the, the Babylonian invasion the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and laying the cities waste. And then the people are taken, the majority of the people are taken into exile. But that's not the end of the story. He says, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. That is, they'll get dealt another blow. As a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So we know from history that Judah was actually uh, dealt with twice by the Babylonians, okay? 
Uh, those that were left in the land decided that they would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So the Babylonians came in and they, they crushed them again and more people were killed and more people were taken into exile. But a small remnant, as the text says, is left in the land uh, as the rest of the countrymen were taken uh, into Babylon for 70 years. Now this remnant, he says, is like a stump from which, uh, what happens when you cut some trees down? You have all these suckers that come up, but they do not come back to the tree's original glory. Okay, but they're there. There's a remnant. Okay, so, of course, the Judeans, uh, the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, many Levites and priests will return, reestablish things under Ezra and Nehemiah. And, uh, but now I want to look at this question. So who is it that spoke from the throne to Isaiah? Who are the angels referring to when they said, holy, holy, holy? Who is this king, the Lord of hosts? Well, that actually takes us to John 12:41. It says this. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, who's him? Well, John the Apostle just finished quoting uh, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, the judgments uh, pronounced on, Israel, on Judah. Okay? But when John says that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, guess who John is talking about in the context? Jesus. He says that who Isaiah saw was Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ. There's no way around it in the text. No way around it. The one seraph who cried out to the other saying, holy, 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 he is referring to Jesus. The king, the Lord of hosts, who is Yahweh, is Jesus. So Jesus is Yahweh, and Yahweh is Jesus. The one who sits on the throne, who rules over the universe, is Christ. That's awesome. It says all things, Paul says in Colossians, were created by Jesus and they were created for Jesus. Uh, the text looks at, in Isaiah 6, uh, referring to this one essentially uh, as Almighty God. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Almighty. Uh, I love taking people that deny the deity of Christ to places like that. They want to uh, have the Bible for their book but they want to deny the things that it affirms most strongly. And uh, one of the strongest affirmations that we as evangelicals need to make is that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. If he is not, his sacrifice is no good for our sins. Uh, none of this stuff that we do matters. And it's interesting, uh, just as Hebrews 1 says, God the Father calls Jesus God. And he says, all of the angels worship him. The angels know who Jesus is. As we looked at Sunday, the demons know who Jesus is. It's time for us to know who Jesus is. Okay? He is the Lord Almighty. He is Jehovah who sits on the throne of his glory. He's the one that, wor that angels worship. They go. They come and go at his bidding. Okay? He is the object of angelic praise. And he should be our own. He's the one that Isaiah trembled before. Amen? So this is the one that we worship. The one that Isaiah stood before who was commissioned by is the same God that we worship. Interestingly enough, something that Isaiah will talk about later is that this one who sits on the throne will step down from the throne, Isaiah 53, and become the suffering servant for the salvation of men. The same one that sat on the throne would be the one that actually atones for Isaiah's sins. Amen? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. 
Well, Lord, we may not have the scary privilege that Isaiah had to see you sitting on the throne of your glory and having seraphim shout your holiness to one another. But Lord, I would pray that just as Isaiah had an experience of his own wretchedness, just as Job did and David did, as Peter said, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. As Paul said that I am a a wretched man in whom nothing good dwells. Lord, I pray that you would give us a true sense of our, our nature, not because you're mean, but because you want us to remember where we came from. You want us to appreciate the sacrifice, Lord, the distance that is between us, but that through the atonement, you're imminent, you're close. So Lord, help us to have an awareness. And as Paul told Titus, that we would carry that awareness with us so that we would be merciful to others, remembering what we were, where we came from, and how we were saved. And Lord, also I pray that as we get a sense of what we really are, that we would get a better sense of who you really are. Lord Jesus, that we would recognize you as the King of glory, that you are Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and that you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone can speak for the rest of the Trinity. You are God Almighty. Lord, help us to worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.